and welcome to Saga Briefs, the companion series to Saga Thing, where we talk about the stories behind the sagas. I'm John. And I'm Andy. Those of you who are all caught up with your Saga Thing podcast will know that we're currently working our way through the Skald or Poet Sagas. Well, we're not exactly making great progress on that this summer, are we? <laughs> well, even a couple shilly shallyers like us deserve a oh. vacation. <laughs> Do we really? I mean, our podcast comes out once a month. Do you think we can manage it? <laughs> yeah, well, let me remind you that you had a baby recently. Well, my wife did most of that, but yes, yes. Sure, sure. Now, <laughs> I, now have, I have a baby, yes. Right. And you've been traveling to conferences in Iceland and touring their finest breweries with your children, I might add. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we had a great time. Uh, my sons enjoyed themselves very much. Uh, I've got stories to tell, but right now I'll just say that visiting Helgefell was probably the highlight of the trip. Um, and that Iceland is really a great place to bring small children. Uh, obviously, there are challenges to traveling with them, but nobody wants to hear about those. Were you uh, at all tempted to uh, enter the mountain of Helgefell and check out what's going on in there? <laughs> My ancestors didn't want me. The oh, mountain well. remained closed. Oh, that's too bad. Sorry. Anyway. So what's your excuse? Well, you know, this little thing called tenure. It's kind of important <laughs> to get some articles published oh, for that. that. So I've been writing a little bit. Uh-huh. Fair enough. Uh, well, given all that's going on, I think we should take some more time off. No, we'll no, see no, you no, in no, the no, fall. No. No, no, we're finally sitting down, and I think we both enjoy doing this so much that uh, we don't want to wait any longer. So let's get started, shall we? What are we going to be covering in this saga brief, John? Um, Well, we should probably set up by providing a little bit of context for the listeners. All right. Uh, Now, we've already done Gunlog's Serpentung saga, uh, and we will be recording the saga of Halford Troublesome Poet very soon, we promise, Uh, because they're neatly packaged together in the Penguin volume, Sagas of the Warrior Poets. Oh, if you don't already have Halford Saga and you want to read it before we get to it, we recommend you visit our website, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com, and follow the link we provided to purchase your very own copy of the Warrior Poet Sagas. It's an excellent idea. Uh, it's a great collection of Skald Sagas, actually. Um, and if you remember, during the discussion of Gunlag Serpentung and his fights with Hraven, we mentioned that it might be fun to do a saga brief on the Icelandic art of dueling. Ah, yes. I think I remember something like that. If only because I so love the Icelandic art (laughs) of dueling. (laughs) So, sit back and relax as we discuss the wonders of... The Holmgang. You said it that way on purpose so you could put a silly effect (laughs) in later, didn't you? No, no, no. Yes, maybe a little bit. There was was Uh, a silly effect back there, wasn't there? There will be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that word deserves a bit of something extra. It's Mm -hmm. one of my favorite words in Icelandic, actually. Is it really? Yeah. Why? Well, I just enjoy the sound of the word. It, I like how oh, it rises right. and falls. Holmgang. Hmm. My favorite is glugathukar, but I see what you're saying. Uh, Holmgang has a certain resonance to it. Yeah, it does. Wait a minute. Glugathukar, it's something's thick. What is thick? No, uh, it is uh, gluga is windows. Okay. Uh, and so it's a, a word that's used in Greta's saga to describe a cloudy sky with windows for the moonlight to come through. Lovely. During his fight with Glom. Okay. Um, Just anyway, fun to say. Holmgang, I like this word. It sounds way better than dueling. Uh, mm-hmm. There's some kind of French or Latin influence going on there that I just don't appreciate. <laughs> Holmgang. That sounds like an event to me. Um, <laughs> okay. But my love for the term goes back to those bygone days of grad school when I started dabbling in medieval revenge narratives. Ah, I see the connection now. Yeah. The sagas as a storehouse of revenge narratives. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. what drew me to them. And as I read through the sagas for the first time, I was struck by this particular term and its relevance for my fascination with vengeance and all those emotions that drive it. 
Um, and that's because Hong Kong is the medieval Icelandic, or I guess I should say Scandinavian. Well, you might. I'm not sure why you would. <laughs> so to put bluntly then, the Hong Kong is a medieval Scandinavian tradition of formalized dispute settlement through dueling. Ooh. But you're the definition guy, and I feel like I'm stepping on your toes here. Well, that wasn't bad. I mean, you go right ahead. I'll add a goofy sound effect later, and we'll be even. <laughs> Why don't you start this thing off with your very best definition of the term Hongang? Well, it's not going to be mine, but we'll start off with the literal translation of the Old Norse Hongang. Okay. Uh, it's a compound word. It's made up of the noun Holmer, which means a small island or islet, uh, and Ganga, which means walking. Yeah, but it's much more than a casual stroll. Well, yeah, one might say it's kind of dangerous. Even life-threatening, perhaps. One can say that, yes. This is the kind of walk you can lose a limb on. Oh, that sounds lovely. How are the views? <laughs> well, I imagine they're <laughs> quite lovely if you want to take them in. I doubt the participants are terribly worried about it, though. There are far more important things to pay attention to on a home gong. Uh, Zwega's Concise Dictionary of Old Icelandic defines it as a duel or wager of battle fought on an islet. Yeah, these wagers of battle actually appear quite often in the sagas, and perhaps nowhere more prominently than in the poet sagas that we've been reading. Right, which is part of why we're doing this now. Right. And if the sagas are to be believed, these wagers of battle are in fact often fought on a small island or islet, usually somewhere near the Thing site for that region. Mm -hmm. I, I think we saw Holmgangs at the Althing and Gunlag saga already, uh, but it also happens in Jarl saga, Ale saga, many other sagas. Right. I mean, they fight their duels on a little island, uh, or Holm, in the Axewater, uh, the river that flows through Thingveller. It was a uh, rather anticlimactic Holmgang for old Gunlog, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, no lost limbs there. Just that minor scratch for Gunlog on the face, uh, and the battle ended on a technicality. We need to talk more about that, but I guess we'll get to that later. Now, you probably didn't know this, but I've spent a lot of time on Google Earth studying panoramics of Thingveller, kind of what? zooming in on little islands in the Axewater, wondering to myself, is that the island where the Holmgang was fought? Or, or is it that one there? <laughs> <laughs> do, do you happen to know which one it is? I mean, you oh, were just there. I could have, I could have saved you some time. <laughs> uh, that island has long since been lost to the ages. Uh, the Axewater <laughs> has changed its levels and directions over time. When you go back and look at the axe water near the all thing, you'll see a lot of little islands, but almost sure. certainly not the original site of the home guy. Now I feel very <laughs> – I'm so silly. <laughs> that That's incredibly depressing to learn, but I don't know why I didn't think about changing water tables and things. That's very <laughs> obvious. Well, in fairness, the axe water changed its course a number of times, uh, sometimes with the help of man. So it's not surprising that a tiny island might have been lost. Yeah, but you've seriously just destroyed my dream of one day visiting Iceland and stepping on the little island in the Axewater where Gunlaw got his scratch. I hope you're happy with yourself. I'll live. <laughs> All right, so enough of that ridiculousness. Um, when, when I first encountered the practice of Holmgang in the sagas, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed imagining this whole romantic setting in which uh, the... Romantic um, setting? You mean yeah. talking candles and gentle piano music in the background? <laughs> no, not that kind of romantic. Like literary romance. Ah, literary romance. Yeah. Um, so Fabio with his shirt off on horseback, his pecs bouncing up and down. No, that's your kind of literary romance. Uh, let me rephrase this. I imagined like a really cool scene with two dudes battling it out on an island. Nowhere so to hide. So not run. romance at all. Nowhere to hide. It's uh -huh. all business. And this small island setting, it's got water running all around it. And mm -hmm. it's surrounded by a, a stunning landscape with blue skies and green mountains in the background. I mean, we're talking about a really dramatic scene in a movie. Oh, absolutely. But, I mean, that assumes that the Holmgang is literally fought on an island. Yeah, which turns out isn't always the case, which yeah. is kind of 
also disappointing. I mean, when you dig sorry. into various instances of home ganging in the in the sagas. I'm sorry. <laughs> did you just say home ganging? Yeah, I did. It's like dueling, but the old Icelandic version of it. Okay. Well, what would you say? How would you turn it into a? I, I would version? say carry on. Okay. So when you dig into the various instances of home ganging in the sagas, <sighs> you find out very quickly that the island or home is usually more of a figurative concept than a literal one. Yeah. Uh, so what you see more often is a duel fought on land where the combatants mark out a specific area for the battle. Uh, I think in Ale Saga, there's an instance where the boundaries of the duel are marked by a circle of stones. And they're often surrounded, the two combatants are often surrounded by their friends and supporters, and probably enthusiasts of the spectacle as well. But the island itself is the confined space, and not necessarily a real island. Exactly. Uh, so if you think, if you think about, um, the classic, you know, fight in a schoolyard after school, right? All the mm-hmm. kids kind of crowding around in a circle, uh, forcing the two in the fight to stay together and finish their brawl. Right. Yeah, the most famous example of this and the source for much of our knowledge about the home gong is Cormac Saga. And you'll find that most scholars tend to go back to Cormac Saga for information about mm-hmm. this practice. Which, incidentally, you can find in your copy of Sagas of the Warrior Poets. Indeed, you can. It's the first one. Mm-hmm. So if you have the book or when you have it, go to Chapter 10 of Cormac Saga for the full description. Um, and you'll see the setup that they do. And what you'll notice, um, and I think I'll read this, mm-hmm. uh, and what you'll notice as I kind of go through this example is vivid detail and deeply ritualistic nature of the home gong and mm-hmm. how it's described. Um, and I'm going to skip over the context and I'm going to jump right into the setup. The dueling laws had it that the cloak was to be five L square with loops at the corners and pegs had to be put in of the kind that had a head at one end. They were called tarsis. And he who made the preparations was to approach the Tarsus in such a way that he could see the sky between his legs while grasping his earlobes and uttering the invocation that has since been used again in the sacrifice known as the Tars sacrifice. There were to be three spaces marked out around the cloak, each a foot in breadth, and outside the marked spaces there should be four strings named hazel poles. When that was done, what you had was a hazel poled stretch of ground. You were supposed to have three shields, but... When they were used up, you were to go on to the cloak, even if you had withdrawn from it before. And from then on, you were supposed to protect yourself with weapons. He who was challenged had to strike. If one of the two was wounded in such a way that blood fell on the cloak, there was no obligation to continue fighting. If someone put just one foot outside the hazel poles, he was said to be retreating, or to be running if he did so with both. There would be a man to hold the shield for each one of the two fighting, and he who was the more wounded of the two was to release himself by paying dual ransom to the tune of three marks of silver. You know, I'm always struck by how stiff that section sounds compared to the rest of the chapter. Yeah, it, it it's hard to read, too, but it has the air of authenticity. <laughs> well, particularly when you get to the part about grasping your earlobes and watching yeah. the sky from between your legs. Yeah, you're enchanting something. What an right. odd concept. But it does have the air of authenticity, like it was taken out of a rule book or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's certainly our most detailed example of the home gang, which is why we see it referenced all the time in scholarship. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, how seriously should we take this account as historical uh, documentation? I'm really not sure. Well, okay. Do you think the author is quoting from a legitimate source about the rules of the home gang, or is this a bit of clever reimagining? Uh, I'm going to waffle again and say it's hard to say. Mm-hmm. I, it, the easy answer, based on the sound of the text and the detail that he provides, is yes. Well, it wasn't but, a yes or no question. 
<laughs> but the fact that it it sounds legit doesn't really mean anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's not forget that the practice of the home gong in Iceland was outlawed somewhere around the year 1006. Right, and that's a pretty important issue. I mean, our listeners uh, may recall from Gunlag Saga uh, that Gunlag's home gong with Raven at the All Thing was the last official duel in Iceland. Uh, I think uh, Greta's saga explains that Jarl Eric outlaws the practice in Norway not long after, uh, mainly because it was viewed as unfair. Right. So the important thing, the important thing that I want to take away from it anyways, is the fact that the author of Cormac's saga probably wouldn't have had access to any eyewitness accounts or even written formalized rules of dueling from the period he's writing about. Mm-hmm. The main action of Cormac's saga is somewhere in the mid-10th century, and formal writing and the kind of day-to-day documentation necessary uh, to preserve these kind of traditions in something like a rule book, mm-hmm. uh, it wouldn't come to Iceland until after the conversion. Now we're right, right on the conversion here, um, right? But right. how established are we? Right. Well, and, and even though uh, Cormac Saga is often thought to be one of the earliest sagas, it still wasn't written down until the early 13th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's at least a couple hundred years after the end of the Holmgang in Iceland. Yeah. So when I consider all of that, I tend to think that the author's probably just really good at making up his description and helping mm-hmm. it to sound legit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I guess I'm not saying that it's not legit necessarily. Uh, the tradition could have continued illegally for who knows how long, mm-hmm. and the rules could easily have been preserved through oral transmission long enough to maybe have been written down for posterity. But, I mean, at that point, we're just grasping at straws just to prove something that we want to be true. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I do think, though... That it's safe to say that there was enough evidence to suggest that there was a formalized dueling practice like the home gong described in the sagas. And there's certainly more evidence for that than we saw for the blood eagle in our first saga brief. Yeah, no, So I'm not, I'm not going to dismiss the outright, uh, I'm not going to dismiss the practice of home gong outright. I just don't think it was so rigidly defined as what we see here. Uh, So I just don't think it's as rigidly defined as what we see here. What do you think of the description in Cormac's saga? Do you have anything to add to this? No, I, I, I tend to agree. I think you, I think that covers it. Uh, we can't mm-hmm. just dismiss the historical reality of the duel as a concept, since we can be pretty sure it was happening. Right? And, again, right. and again, as you say, this is not like the Blood Eagle, where uh, there's reason to be skeptical as to whether it even existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the details that we get and that flesh it out in the sagas probably owe as much or more to creative writing than to research history. Right. So now that we've deconstructed the whole concept, I think we should probably build it back up a bit. What do you mean? Well, we started out saying it was a duel fought on an island, John. And then we said it wasn't necessarily on an island. And we followed that up with an example of how it wasn't always on an island, only to undercut the legitimacy of that example. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, starting over, what can we say about the home gong that we can both accept as reasonably legit? Oh, I think there's plenty. Mm-hmm. I just think we have to be careful about how strictly we define the practice. So, like in the Blood Eagle episode, we have to keep in mind that these episodes in the sagas are all cultural reconstructions. Mm -hmm. Some of them are nostalgic. Some of them are didactic and disapproving. Despite all of that, though, I think the variety of methods, landscapes, and practices we see in the sagas actually reflect the real-world variety of homegong practices from the settlement and commonwealth age. I I hope this isn't too disappointing for our listeners. We keep coming up (laughs) with this, well, it's not really all that true. Uh, right. I can imagine some people just want a clear answer to some of the issues that come up. Yeah, so do I. You know, there can be a real satisfaction <laughs> in just taking things at face value. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not just, it's, it's just not the business we're in. No, I mean, sometimes it feels like we're in the wrecking cool stuff business. <laughs> yeah, it uh, does. <laughs> I know my students feel that way. Right. So why don't we start over and try to fix this by looking at some of the characteristics of the home guy? 
Oh, yes, yes. I like that term. Mm. Characteristics. It's just general <laughs> enough that I think we might be able to get away with some more definite statements there. I thought you might like that. Yeah. All right. So let's move away from where the home ganga was fought and talk about why it was fought. All right. Uh, now, it would be easy to look at the Icelandic Holmgang and conclude that it was pretty much like any other duel in the Western European tradition. Uh, we could be talking about D'Artagnan dueling the Three Musketeers or cowboys shooting it out in the Wild West. Yeah, when I hear the word duel, I always think of that haughty aristocratic gentleman with lace pouring out of his sleeves, throwing down his glove at some man of lesser status who's been sleeping with his woman. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that's really specific. That's what I have in my mind. Uh, all right. Um, your mind is a frightening place. Uh, there's certainly something to that version if we only look at the Skald Sagas. Yeah. Uh, Gunlog may not have fancy sleeves, but he and Hraven are essentially fighting over Helga. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's basically the same, uh, that's basically true of each of the other poet sagas. More or less. Now, now, you mentioned the Wild West a second ago, and it's the same there too. Yep. Do you actually know about the, the duel, this famous duel between Wild Bill Hickok and Davis Tut? No, and I question whether it's actually famous. What, what happened? <laughs> What happened between Wild Bill Hickok and the other guy? What's his name? Oh, it's famous enough. Anyway, oh, it's a minor digression, but maybe it's worth it. Okay. And what's I'm the, about wait, to what's the other west, guy's name again? So. His name's Davis Tut. Okay. All right. Well, I'll so, be the judge of whether it's famous or not, but go on. Okay. So you got Wild Bill. Uh, you might know him from Wild Bill him I know, Hickok yes. and his famous shows and mm-hmm. Deadwood and all that stuff. So you got Wild Bill and this other guy named David Tut, and they used to be friends. But then... Bill started sneaking around with Tut's sister. Ah, uh, classic. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess Tut started giving the eye to Wild Bill's girl. Okay. Wait, isn't that, isn't Wild Bill's girl Tut's sister? No, no, this is a different girl. I think Tut's <laughs> sister is just like a side piece. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, they're, they're playing like they're still friends, but in secret, they really start hating each other. Mm-hmm. And then Tut is trying to, he's going to try to ruin Wild Bill. And he makes the first move by setting up a poker game where he's going to bankrupt Wild Bill by working with the other players. But Hickok somehow ends up winning. I don't know what Wait, so happened. There. Is Tut double crossed or? I don't know. I, I have no idea, but don't interrupt me. <laughs> Sorry. We got to get, we got to get through this digression. <laughs> Go on. So Tut is so mad that he snatches Bill's pocket watch. It's like a really fancy watch made of gold. And he says he's going to keep it until Bill pays up for an old gambling debt that he probably invented. But that, that just seems petty. Yeah, it's not cool at all. Mm-hmm. And Bill, cool guy that he is, doesn't go crazy. Mm-hmm. He just calmly asks for the watch back and he sits there while Tut walks away with it. Awfully calm and, for a guy named Wild Bill. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's more of a show. show <laughs> so anyway, the next day, Tut is walking around swinging this pocket watch and making a big show of it, which obviously Bill isn't going to like much. Well, I can imagine. I mean, at this point, it just sounds like this guy, Tut, is asking Bill to kill him. And that's basically what happens. While <laughs> Bill <laughs> while Bill confronts Tut in the town square and he says something like, you better not come through here with that watch, buddy. That's not a very good. <laughs> <laughs> is that your is that Wild a, West voice? I think that was Gizli. <laughs> that's what I was saying. It's the return of Gizli. Yeah. Now, both men have their hands on their guns and they're staring at each other all cool like in some Clint Eastwood Western. And then they both draw at the same time, but Wild Bill was more accurate, and he hits Tut in the ribs and kills him. Okay, so this is essentially a great example of how the typical duel differs from the medieval Icelandic Holmgang. That is exactly why I told it. (laughs) Sure, I never doubted you. 
Right. Um, so that story is actually pretty classic. And aside from uh, simple jealousies erupting into violence, one of the most important issues at stake in all forms of dueling, uh, whether it's Western or Icelandic or whatever, is that of personal honor. Right. It's really the heart of most of the conflicts we see in the sagas, if if not in all literature. Yeah, I mean, sure. Um, and there are definitely these kinds of commonalities between the Icelandic holmgang and the broader concept of dueling as we know it from literature or film. But there's a lot more to it. Uh, these saga characters are not simply a bunch of D'Artagnans or wild bills who feel slighted and enter a public duel to settle the score. Oh, definitely. Uh, the participants in the saga dueling are, they're often battling over slights to their honor, but these duels are almost exclusively designed to settle a legal dispute of some sort. Right, and that's Honor key. plays a, it plays a big part in all of that, but it's the legal issue itself that usually drives the individuals to battle. Yeah, if we're going to talk about the home gun, we have to look at it primarily as an important method of dispute resolution for early Icelandic culture. Uh, this is especially true in the settlement period where the rule of law wasn't yet fully established and things are still a bit wild. Uh, so, let's get into this at long last. Well, at long last? There. You're the one telling stories about the American West. But are the Wild West and the Icelandic sagas really so different? Um, well, I mean, there's a lot of romanticized violence in both of them, and they both privilege an outsized version of the masculine ideals of their culture. But yes, they're very different. <laughs> okay, all right. So, the typical home gong was a formalized method of dispute settlement used to put a definitive end to legal conflicts. Typically speaking, the home gong would be fought over issues involving something like property disputes, accusations of theft, seduction, mm -hmm. and slander. Right. Well, inheritance disputes as well, let's not forget. Oh, yeah, right. I, I kind of lump those in with property disputes since they're yeah, often just fighting over land. But mm -hmm. you're right, they do fight more generally over who gets what. And all this is fully supported by the courts, which is why we see so many duels being fought at the all thing uh, or at local thing sites. Right. Putting the emotions driving the feud aside, the home gong served as an opportunity for the two parties to resolve an impasse through legalized violence. And there are two basic forms of legalized dueling at this time. And so far, we've only been talking about the home gong, but there was also the Einvigi. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm glad you're bringing that up here. Why don't you mm -hmm. tell everybody about the Einvigi as quickly uh, as you can? Well, it's... <laughs> I see. You get three or yeah. four minutes to talk yeah, about the wild long West. stories. I have to... Right. Um... Well, it's basically like a home gun, but it's much less formal and without all the rules that limit the violence and pacing of the duel. So it's basically like an all-out, anything-goes kind of fight. Right. I mean, to continue your Wild West comparison, it's the difference between the quick draw at high noon and the shootout at the OK Corral. You see, I knew what I was doing with that example. Well, and our, <laughs> and our listeners have already encountered both kinds because Gunlag and Raven do both in Gunlag Saga. Oh, is there second duel in Einvigi then? Yeah. Uh, okay. It's a little bit less chaotic than Einvigis tend to be, but yeah. Uh, one good distinction between the Holmgang and the Einvigi is they, besides the formal rules and boundaries of the Holmgang, uh, is the fact that the Einvigi is often fought to the death. The Holmgang usually isn't. It's usually fought with a predetermined endpoint. Well, I mean, death is a pretty good endpoint, isn't it? Well, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, an endpoint before death. Oh, okay. Uh, designed to prevent death. So, like in Gunlog's home gun with Thraven, there are two possible ends established. Uh, the loser is whoever drops a weapon first, or whoever is injured first. And of course, they they kind of both win and lose that fight. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, Thraven, as if you guys will recall, strikes first, and he hits hits the shield of Gunlog so hard that his sword breaks. The tip of the broken sword flies upward and scratches Gunlog's cheek, but Thraven is weaponless at this point. Uh, he's only got a hilt. 
So everybody rushes in to stop the duel on the grounds that the agreed-upon terms had been met. But, of course, both sides think it's been met by the Mm -hmm. other one losing. Right. I think we kind of talked – when we talked about it before, we said it was a little bit anticlimactic. But in this context, it's really a cleverly written scene. Yeah, it really is. Uh, And it does a nice job of calling the whole practice of the Hongang into question. Now, you're getting ahead of things. We're going to try to stick to just establishing what the Hongang was before we start examining why it was abolished altogether. All right. Um, Yeah, we've got to get better at staying on track, don't we? We've we've already been talking for a while. Yeah, I don't know, though. Most podcasts seem to wander around a bit. Maybe it's like a a superficial structure is part of the podcast aesthetic. There you go. Uh, (laughs) So are we done with the Einwege? Yeah, I think, uh, I think we can talk about it where necessary, but the distinction seems clear enough. Homegong has strict rules and structures. Einwege is no holds barred kind of winner take all affair. Excellent. Good. Yes. Um, so where do we go from here? (laughs) Well, why don't, why don't we try going through the whole process from start to finish? The whole, you mean like actually have a duel? (laughs) All right. (laughs) If we're going to fight, I insist on not dying. (laughs) Well, now, uh, let's do a homegong to first blood. I just want to be clear here. I was just talking about outlining the process <laughs> from the challenge to the conclusion. But if you want to fight with me, I, I'm, I'm up for it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, maybe not the physical part. Uh, but <laughs> oh, we'll run through go. this as if we were the two duelers. Oh, all right. All right. I, well, I, I better win this one. <laughs> so um, what exactly are we so upset about that we're going to be foregoing court judgment and rushing straight to the duel? Uh, well, we're both happily married. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, our children are too young to cause any real trouble. So, yeah, you know, no, and no mistresses on the scene, right? Right. So for a saga context, this is going to be an issue of money or property. Mm, that sounds reasonable. Okay. Yeah, I'll go ahead and I'll be the instigator here. Of course you are. <laughs> you're just playing the type, really. <laughs> well, now you're trying to slander me and ruin my reputation. <laughs> now that's, that's cause enough for a challenge, John. Do not make me challenge you. Okay. Uh, oh, so I guess that's we'll kind of the point. Right, that is the point. Uh, so we'll say that we're neighbors. We've agreed to share a small area, let's say a woodland area, mm-hmm. that lies between our properties. Okay, so who actually owns this land? I call it. <laughs> you got it? Okay. Dibs. Uh, but let's say you come from a larger family and have a bigger farm nearby. Maybe you're oh, the local gothi. That makes sense. I like that quite a bit, actually. Um, it's only natural that you'd be a hermit with few friends. <laughs> Talk oh. about playing to type. <laughs> now who's slandering who? <laughs> it's only fair. Um, all right. So I think I see where this is going. So, um, you're using this woodland area to keep me friendly with you because you might need my support at some point in time. Right. Sure. Okay. Um, and no, we're not really friends. Uh, in fact, nothing. Just personal. like in real life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in fact, there's a history of tension between our families that goes back a few generations. Um, now maybe we're the grandsons of the guys who got into a duel back in episode one. Yeah. Could uh, be. Uh, now, as time passes, you start taking more than your share of the available wood. Which, I, that's only proper, right? I mean, I'm providing <laughs> for a much larger family. I've got more land to care for. I, I'm also ensuring that you're safe, safe from your enemies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of protection doesn't come cheap, John. Uh, plus, Are you a I, mafia I, I, enforcer? <laughs> I also kind of know that you don't really need that wood for your little hovel that you live in. <laughs> All right, I'm going to let that slide since you're getting into character. Yeah. Oh, yes, I am. I'm getting into character. No, I just I, – I thought I was just being logical, but yeah. <laughs> so I'm taking more wood than I have a right to. Uh, what are you going to do about it? Um, I'm going to slaughter you. I'm going to take you to court. Oh, <laughs> I was hoping we could avoid court altogether. Maybe we could talk this out. Yeah, why is that? 
because you own the property uh-huh. and you can accuse me of stealing, which isn't going to go well for me at all. No, uh-huh. this isn't looking good. I don't like it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this could result in outlawry for you. Seriously? Would you really push that far? Of course I would. <laughs> this is my best opportunity to be rid of you for once and all. That's pathetic. You, you realize that my family's not going to sit idly by and let you get away with this, right? Ah, uh, certainly. That's why I've been making friends with other powerful men. Uh, Your family's going to have to sit idly by or risk a major feud and the loss of everything they own. Oh, great. Okay. This didn't go exactly how I thought it would, but you, <laughs> you're you backing me into a corner. Uh, All right. What are you going to do about it? Well, look, it's true that I probably owe you some money, which I would pay if the court found me guilty. If? How about when? <laughs> okay. So I-, I will pay if I'm forced to. But before we go to court, I challenge you to a duel. I want you to meet me behind the Walgreens at 4 o'clock, three days from now. (laughs) Or you're going to be forever known as a coward. And if you Uh fail to show up, I will not only make sure that everyone knows about it. I'm going to erect a monument of a chicken on the spot so your cowardly nature will be known to all future generations. That escalated quickly, didn't it? (laughs) It did. But I think it's reasonable. Nicely done. Um, I think you hit all the right points for the challenge. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I'm no slouch when it comes to formal home gong challenges, John. God, well. Uh, you've got to have a specific place. You've got to have a time and a good insult to help seal the deal. Yeah, um, about the specific place. I'm not sure about the Walgreens, uh, but you threw <laughs> in a nice version of the scorn pole with a chicken statue. Thank you very much. I, I thought it was a nice touch. Yeah, I was inspired by uh, Yokel's challenge to Finbogey in Vatnsdala Saga. Isn't that the one with the horse on a pole? Yes, exactly. Yeah, I was just reading through that episode recently, and I thought it was one of the like kind of cooler examples of the scorn pole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know we'll talk about it when we get to Vatnsdala Saga, but it's worth a quick mention now. So uh, basically, uh, if you'll allow me another digression. Oh, jeez. <laughs> like you have a choice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Yokel is this really tough and imposing figure. Uh, Well, yeah, his name means glacier, so you'd expect nothing less, really. Yeah. And Yokel's brother, Thorstein, is challenged to a duel by a guy named Finbogi. And then Finbogi's mm-hmm. friend, Berg, tra- challenges Yokel to a duel on the same day. So Mm -hmm. Yokel stands up and says something uh, like he doesn't want his brother to be hurt. So he counters by challenging both Berg and Finbogi to fight him alone. Yeah, well, that's a a risky move. Um, Those guys, those are the guys with the nicknames Finbogi the Mighty and Berg the Strong, right? Yeah, that's right. But, but, I mean, Yokel's not afraid of these jokers. Mm -hmm. So part of his challenge, like the one that I just did, is to publicly shame his enemies, saying something like, you better show up to the duel, or everyone will know you have a mayor's heart and not a man's. Mm. And then he concludes the challenge with a threat to raise what is called a scorn pole with a curse on it to commemorate the moment. Right. And in that case, Finbogi and Berg don't show up, right? Uh, no, they do not. I mean, so to be no fair, duel. no, to be fair, there is bad weather, uh, but Yokel and his crew, they make a special effort to get there. And sure enough, when Finbogi and Berg fail to show up, Yokel goes to Finbogi's sheep shed and sets up a post. He carves a man's head on it, writes the opening words of the curse in runes, and this curse explains like how Finbogi and Berg are cowards and that they should never have friends again and mm-hmm. that they will have to endure the wrath of the gods. And then, this is the best part, he kills a mare, opens its chest just a little bit, and then sticks it on the pole. Subtle. <laughs> Very subtle. <laughs> Isn't it? Now, I know my chicken monument hardly compares, but I didn't think I could really maybe get away with mounting a dead mare or chicken behind the Walgreens. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's get back to that. Why is this happening behind a Walgreens? 
Oh, yeah. Well, that's because it's kind of like what you're saying uh, a little while ago. When I was in middle school in Miami, my friend Leo was challenged to a fight after school one day. And just like in the sagas, they set the time and place. And this one happened to be behind a drugstore. Maybe it was like uh, Eckerd's, maybe not Walgreens, but Eckerd's. Uh, anyway, everyone met there. They gathered in a circle. And I got to watch my friend experiment with nonviolence in a hostile situation. <laughs> How'd that go for it? Well, I, I seem to recall him getting pushed around a lot, maybe thrown down a few times. Uh, some swear words maybe were exchanged, but his passive resistance kept him from getting punched. <laughs> Gandhi would be proud. Gandhi. <laughs> He's a miniature Gandhi. I think so. Anyway, now back to our feud. Uh, we've got the okay. formal challenge out of the way, right? Uh, yeah. So we'll meet in three days behind the Walgreens, I guess. Sure. Uh, and unlike Finbogi and Berg, I'm going to be there. So you can save whatever money you're going to spend on your chicken monument. Oh, that's generous of you. So uh, what do we do while we wait for this home gong? I was kind of hoping to just kill you as soon as possible. Uh, well, I think that's kind of the point, isn't it? I mean, the, the beauty of the duel, whether we're talking about the Einwege or the home gong or whatever, is that it forces the individuals involved to take some time to think about things. Oh, so it's kind of like the 10-day waiting period before you can buy a gun. Exactly. Now, in the meantime, we are going to be communicating a little about the exact rules of the duel, probably through an intermediary. Now, we don't actually see that in the sagas, but that kind of thing must mm -hmm. have happened. I mean, they always arrive at the site with a clear sense of what the rules are going to be, and the rules tend to be slightly different for each case. Right. Um, so what do you say we follow Gunlog's example and go with uh, first blood or first to lose a weapon? That sounds fair and, and much less dangerous, actually. Which is also kind of the point. Uh, and it's one of the benefits of the home gang over the Einwege, or the more generally violent feud. Uh, it may not always work, right? Sometimes people get killed or maimed. I mean, sometimes first blood is fatal. Mm -hmm. uh, but the home gang is designed to preserve the lives of both combatants. Mm -hmm. And their pocketbooks. I mean, according mm -hmm. to tradition, the loser would have to pay a sum of money, something like the three marks of silver referenced in Cormac Saga. Um, you pay that to the winner. And that's mm -hmm. a decent amount of money, but it's nothing too outlandish. Much better, I think, right. than than a feud and the cost of compensating a family for a killing or multiple killings. Right. I mean, compare that to 200 pieces of silver right. for a death. Yeah. Uh, feuding is much more expensive and obviously far more dangerous. Uh, so, again, the idea is to preserve life through the duel and help forestall a feud or greater violence. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we should agree about what's at stake here, besides the three marks of silver. Okay. Um if you win, uh, you get to use my woodland as much as you like, but you can take no further retribution against me for opening the case. Hmm. All right. That's fair. And, and how about if you win? Uh, I, I just won't use the woodland anymore. That's hardly a balanced victory. Why? I mean, we're just we're, we are just fighting over access to this land, right? Well, that's how you see it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're a gothi. You got more power than I do. I need to get something out of this. So what do you want? Um, how about grazing rights? Hmm. Uh, if we, if we are the grandchildren of the men who fought in episode one, uh, they argued about our sheep grazing on your land. So if I win, my sheep get to run loose on your lawn. Hmm. Uh, that's pretty lame. So yeah, I have no problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I, you have a lot more land than I do. But don't be surprised if some of your sheep go missing. Well, as long as I'm invited to the mutton supper. <laughs> I doubt uh, it. <laughs> After all this. Uh, well, okay, so we're agreed. In principle, if not in detail. Right. Uh, this is actually one of the cool things about uh, Icelandic and even Scandinavian dueling. Uh, in Western Europe, trial by combat was a court institution. Uh, that meant that the rules, regulations, terms, the consequences, the penalties, all that's determined by the court. 
Yeah, and the duel is legal in Scandinavia and it's recognized by the court, but it's not an institution of the court. And this mm-hmm. means that we, as duelers, can determine our own rules and consequences. Yeah, it's quite liberating, isn't it? Absolutely. All right, now we've got three days here. Uh, we should use this time to prepare by finding a referee and our seconds. Right. Now, the referee's job is pretty simple. He's going to attend the duel, perhaps oversee the setup of the boundaries, uh, and he's going to ensure that everything is done to the letter of the homgangolog, uh, which are the rules or laws of the duel that we've agreed upon publicly. Yeah, I mean, he's got an important job. Uh, he's just like an arbitrator in a feud resolution, uh, which the homgang basically is. By announcing the homgangolog publicly right before the fight, he's trying to make sure that everyone knows the terms and that any foul play will be witnessed by everyone there. Now, I wouldn't dream of cheating. I, I'm really too good for that. That's what you say. I would still prefer a public declaration. All right. So now we also need to find our seconds. Right. Uh, now, these guys are really important. They're usually called shield bearers. Uh, they're like a second in a pistol or rapier duel in romantic fiction. Uh, they're there both as witnesses and as supporters. And they're usually very close friends or even relatives who have a vested interest in your success. Yeah, I find the job of the second in the sagas to be somewhat confusing, actually. Why? Well, I, I mean, I usually think of the second in a duel as having a more passive role. Well, I mean, that's sometimes the case in the sagas, right? Most of the characters we see dueling seem to be acting alone once things get going. Right. Uh, the shield bearer carries multiple shields since the two sides agree in advance on how many shields are going to be allowed during the fight. Right. And then when one breaks, the shield bearer can hand him another one. Right. And we actually saw that a little bit of this in the first season of Vikings, those of you who watched the show. Uh, when Ragnar has what is essentially a home gong with uh, Jarl Haraldson. Uh, they have, I think it's a three-shield agreement, but then they decide to forego the shields altogether just to sort of prove how manly they are. Oh, that's right. Yeah, but sometimes, sometimes though, the sagas can be quite ambiguous, and this is where my questions come in. Mm-hmm. They, they're ambiguous about what exactly the shield bearer does, what's his role mm-hmm. in the in the, in the the homegang. There are times when the shield bearer is much, much more involved, and I'm thinking specifically here of the duel in Cormac's saga, where Cormac acts as the second for his friend Steinar. And it's, mm-hmm. it's very specific about what Cormac is doing. Let me read a little bit of that when I find the book. Why don't you? So, uh, Cormac is the shield bearer for Steinar. And as the saga describes things, uh, Cormac's role is, is pretty significant, actually. Um, okay. Bercy hacked two of Steinar's shields, but Cormac held on to the third. Bercy struck at Steinar, but Feeting, which is the sword that he's using, stuck fast in the iron rim of Steinar's shield. Cormac raised the shield, and in that moment, Steinar struck at Bercy, hitting the shield rim with his sword, which glanced off the shield and onto Bercy's buttocks and slid down along his thighs to the hollow of his knees, so that in <laughs> so that it stuck in the bone, and Bercy fell. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, you would, wouldn't you? Right. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting moment. Gross, but an interesting moment. Mm-hmm. It seems to work on the same principle as feuds generally. Right. Your conflict is shared by your friends. Right. And so relying on a friend for your safety becomes almost like a performance of that collective responsibility. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite possible. If this account is describing the duel accurately, though, the the shield bearer was expected to physically block the blows Mm -hmm. aimed at their partner. At least that seems to be what's happening here as I read it. Yeah. (laughs) I've actually been reading a lot about this as I decide whether or not to attempt an article on the subject of seconds. On the seconds, what have you found? A lot of confusion, really. (laughs) (laughs) 
Which is, <laughs> trying to figure this out. That's what we like when we're writing articles. Yeah. Uh, R.S. Radford, uh, who wrote an article on the, the home gong, uh, he seems to follow the Cormac example as standard practice. He even calls the shield bearer at the home gong a defensive specialist who blocks the attacks so that his friend can concentrate on offense only. Hmm. I suppose that's possible if the men are using a two-handed weapon or even two weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Ail Scala Grimson uses a sword and a spear in one duel, doesn't he? Yeah, Ail's fights are always crazy, with far fewer rules than we're really going for, but yeah, mm-hmm. I think he does. Uh, okay, well, so for our purposes, for our idealized kind of, uh, duel, our seconds are expected to hold our two extra shields, but we'll do the fighting ourselves. You promise? You're not gonna call a berserker to fight as your champion? How do you know I'm not a berserker? Uh, <laughs> I've known you. I should, actually. That would be a good option. Uh, but it's not exactly in keeping with the tradition of the sagas. Uh, it does happen occasionally that someone will stand in and fight for another. But that's unusual. Right. Uh, but the kind of tomfoolery that occurs in continental romances, that's hardly the standard practice of medieval Iceland. It's yeah. very important that the individuals who have the issue fight it out between themselves. And so we shall. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. We've got our referee. We've got our seconds. Anything else we need to think of? Well, that depends. If you want to visit a witch and get a spell to help you, that's always an option. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think I want the stain of a witch's visit on my reputation. Uh, the bad guys are the ones who use spells and tricks to win. I'm the hero. I want to win on my own. How noble of you. I'm not sure that you're the hero, but um, I, I do need to let you know at this point that I have an enchanted sword. Uh, it was given to me by my father. <laughs> he won it in battle a long time ago. Oh, great. Yeah, so it's going to be tough to beat. This is a sword that can't be broken, and it also can slice through rocks. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> you know any good witches who work cheap? No, not really, but I'm sure you could find a good one. All right. <laughs> um, let's jump forward to the day of the duel. Uh, we both arrive on time because punctuality is important. Absolutely. Right? Being late for this can, can lead to an accusation of cowardice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have the boundaries marked out already. Now, why exactly did I choose Walgreens? I mean... <laughs> I don't know. We should have met on a cool island somewhere with mountains in the background, like I was saying. I agree, but you chose the spot. Oh, it stinks Uh, back here. Now we have to decide on what weapons we'll use. Okay. Well, what kind of restrictions are we going to place? Well, you can't use your magic sword. Uh, No, I don't. (laughs) Uh, You can use what is most comfortable to you, just so long as neither of us has a distinct advantage. Your sword can't be longer than mine. Okay. Well, I'll avoid the obvious joke there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use my short uh-huh. sword and my shield, if there that's okay with you. Fine. I'm more of an axe man, but I'll use a short sword as well to keep things fair. Okay. So the referee is going to announce the home gongo log. The boundaries are all set. Our witnesses and fans are all gathered around, and the shield bearers are ready. Right, but make sure your shield bearer doesn't get involved or you forfeit. Okay, same here. Uh, and remember, you can't step outside the ring we've made. You're going to be exposed as a coward if you do that, okay? Oh, I'm not running. I've got too much at stake here. <laughs> Me too. All right, let's do this. I'm tired. <laughs> so what's quite a battle? What do we do now? <laughs> how, do, yeah, you're, you, how do we resolve this? You are physically very, very far away from me. So uh, uh, <laughs> we need to decide who won. How do you want to do this? Right. Uh, 
Uh, coin toss? Yeah, coin toss. All right. <laughs> uh, I actually have Icelandic coins with me because okay. I've just gotten back from well, Iceland. Of course you do. Uh, so we'll use a 10 kroner piece. Um, and you can call it. Here is heads and here okay. is fish. Um, so <laughs> okay. do you want, call it in the air, heads or fish? I'm going to go, uh, yeah, fishtails. All right. Um, I'm not going to turn it, but you can see it is heads. Dang it. And I it was have my grazing land. So congratulations to me. Uh, hooray for my sheep and their newfound mm. grazing pastures. And stay out of my woodland. Uh, um, well, there might be a rock slide coming <laughs> your way. <laughs> oh, no. I'm the one who hired the witch. Be prepared uh, for an accident. Well, uh, that was fun. Uh, now, in some of the sagas, uh, the victor would sacrifice a bull after the home gun was finished. So I better get on that. Yeah, you can. You have a, a bull ready? Can you afford one? Uh, no, I you can't. Need to borrow, actually, but... <laughs> need to borrow a bull? <laughs> well, I'll sell some of my wood. Uh, that's a, it's actually an interesting point. Uh, most of the articles about the home gong really emphasize how secular the whole event is. Mm-hmm. Um, Gwyn Jones, who is famous for his book on the Vikings and studies of the Vikings, um, he's got the, the kind of premier article, even though it's quite old, on the home gong. He mm-hmm. makes a very big deal of how the home gong differs from traditional trial by combat examples in medieval Europe. Well, I mean, he's, he's right in that the combatants aren't trying to put the decision directly in God's hands to determine right or wrong. There's no, no definitely pretense. not. Yeah. Uh, the result of a home gong isn't a direct judgment of God or the gods on an individual's guilt or innocence, mm-hmm. like in a trial by combat. Uh, the Icelandic duelers are, they're really taking matters into their own hands and trusting in themselves alone to make their fortune. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Um, but I'm not so sure I agree that the pre-Christian Icelanders would have necessarily thought they were doing it all on their own. Uh, I mean, there is a sense right, that uh, fate is playing a hand, that luck is playing a hand, and these things are tied up with a much kind of broader sort of uh, spiritual landscape. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's safe to say, though, that we don't know what role the religion or faith played in Icelandic uh, home gongs. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it played a significant role, but I also wouldn't be surprised either if it played no role at all. Right, or that sometimes it did and sometimes it didn't, depending on who's fighting and what their beliefs were. Oh, that's a good answer. I see you were very open-minded and fair here at Saga Thing. Well, or possibly just evasive. Yeah, uh, <laughs> very slippery. Uh, Any answer is a good answer. There's actually uh, there's an interesting example in Vatlajot Saga, uh, which is set after the Christianization of Iceland, where the characters end up dueling despite the fact that the Holmgang has already been outlawed. Really? How does the author handle that one? Well, it's got the characteristics of a saga fight, a usual duel, but the mm-hmm. language is much more appropriate for a Christian audience who would see God's hand in the action. Uh, so the fight is actually over whether or not they all breached the rules of Christian holy days by dividing land on Michaelmas. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> uh, they actually get really worked up about it. Uh, the terms of the duel are something like, well, you won't teach me how to observe holy days. That's <laughs> That's hilarious. Now, if ever there was a good reason to fight, that's it. Now, it, it makes our squabble over woodlands uh, kind of trivial, doesn't it? Yeah, we should it? go back and re-record the whole thing, make it about holy days. Yeah. Uh, and Yacht even says that the angel will guide their hands and reveal who was in the right. It's a pretty cool moment. It sounds like it. Yeah, we, we should do that one soon, just for like a change of pace. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, shouldn't we be wrapping this thing up? Uh, we've been going for a while these are called saga briefs, but they seem to run kind of long. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that, that maybe the, the, the name doesn't indicate how, how well, the length of the episodes. Right, right. It's more the legal pun. Yeah, that's what we're going for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're almost done. But we should talk about the decision to outlaw dueling in Iceland. Yeah, if only briefly. Uh, yeah, that's an appropriate way to wrap things up, I guess. Yeah, indeed it is. Now, as everyone knows by now, anyway, dueling was outlawed in Iceland around the year 1006. And mm-hmm. as we said earlier, the very last duel fought in Iceland is supposedly that home gong between Gunlaug and Hraven. Right. And that author also hints at the Norwegian authorities' discomfort with dueling when Gunlaug and Hraven try to set up a final Einvigi, uh in Norway. Uh, exactly. Jarl Erik, uh, he works to delay the fight until Hraven is far enough away that he seems kind of out of Gunlaug's reach. Uh, yeah, um, Greta's saga actually speaks pretty directly about Norway's decision to outlaw the duel. Uh, and I, I'm assuming that it speaks for Iceland's reasoning to some degree as well, since it's an Icelandic writer. That's right. Do you have it there? Uh, yeah, it's actually in chapter 19. Uh, it reads, Before leaving Norway, Earl Eric had summoned the landholders and powerful farmers to him. They discussed many aspects of the law and government of the country because Eric was a firm ruler. People there thought it was disgraceful practice to allow robbers and berserks to challenge men of high standing to duels for their money or wives, without compensation being paid for the one who was slain. Many had suffered disgrace and lost their money. Some had even lost their lives. And so Earl Eric banned all duels in Norway. He also outlawed all robbers and berserks who caused any trouble. Yeah, I, I like that passage. And I think we see in the, the sagas generally making, they, they make a great case for that, that particular view. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about all the cases where a young upstart who's good with a sword takes advantage of those weaker than himself. Right. I mean, right in our very first saga episode, we talked about Hrofenkel fighting duels to increase his wealth and establish himself mm-hmm. without having to pay compensation. Right. Right. And the same thing in Erbiga's saga with Thorolf Twistfoot, uh, picking a duel right. with Ulfar the champion, who's at that point a very old man. Yeah, so there's definitely a problem with men using the home gong and the Einvigi to circumvent the legal system. Mm-hmm. But that's really, that's only part of the story. Yeah, no, it's a lot more complex. I mean, we know that sometimes the duel was an effective tool for preventing injustice in a corrupt court. Uh, I think it comes up as a last recourse for justice just as often as it works to circumvent justice. Mm. Yeah, some people like to point out that the decision to abolish dueling coincides roughly with Iceland's conversion to Christianity, so that uh, dueling is is too violent and barbaric a, a practice uh, for the the tender-hearted Christians. But I, I really don't buy that one. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if they're totally unrelated, but it's it's not likely that there's a causal effect there. Uh, for mm-hmm. one thing, Norway was Christian first, and they didn't outlaw dueling until 1014, which is nearly a decade after Iceland. Right. And I think it's worth noting that dueling wasn't outlawed anywhere else in Europe until much later. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another article by uh, Marlene uh, Siklamini. Uh, it's called uh, The Old Icelandic Duel. Mm-hmm. She she tells us that the Christian courts had no problem with dueling and trial by combat. Uh, I think we, we all know that. Um, mm-hmm. she, but she also notes some abbeys even kept their own champions to defend them in their legal proceedings. Huh. And even priests sometimes took part in the occasional duel. Really? Yeah. Well, okay. That, <laughs> I want to read that now. Uh, but that's a different subject in a different podcast. Uh, it does seem unlikely that the church had anything to do with the Icelandic ban directly, uh, especially because it's also, remember, so weak in Iceland during this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, incidentally, do you know when England outlawed dueling? Uh, it depends on what you mean by dueling and by outlawed, for that matter. Ah, oh, here we go. Uh, with <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just saying there are still honest-to-goodness duels being yeah. fought in the 19th century under Queen Victoria, but not many. 
Yeah, um, it, absolutely. I mean, and dueling kind of continues. I was thinking, uh, according to the Cyclamini article, she references uh, mm-hmm. uh, something happening in 1818 where they decide to outlaw duels uh, right. legally. But I'm right. sure they kept doing it afterwards because it's part of a tradition, right? Yeah, I mean, so the last recorded one, I think, is in the 1840s sometime. Uh, and mm-hmm. in that case, um, the survivor, the winner of the duel, was was then called into court uh, for murder, right? I mean, because that's essentially when you – like break it down and you you remove the social sanction for it dueling is just killing somebody mm-hmm. uh, and so he was brought into court uh, and tried but he was then let go because he argued and he had witnesses that it was a duel yeah. uh, the newspapers well, at the time freaked out because you know what they're essentially saying is if a wealthy man is fighting yeah. in a duel and kills somebody it's okay but mm-hmm. if a poor man commits murder then it's murder and so you sort of, you know, you had this sort of outcry that there was this second set of rules for the aristocracy. Right. Well, th- some of the uh, arguments about Icelandic duel is that uh, I think it, I think it's Radford who makes the argument, but I'm mm-hmm. not 100% sure on that. Um, says something like the duel, uh, one of the reasons that the duel was outlawed was because the aristocracy was trying to preserve um, preserve themselves. Like the, the life of a man mm. in Iceland is worth far more than it is maybe anywhere else just because of all the things that you uh, that they had to do and the struggle to survive. Huh. And so the aristocracy uh, doesn't want their men dying mm-hmm. in these battles over honor. And so they they make a, a strong effort to outlaw dueling to preserve uh the these young men's lives. So and you kind of see that with Gunlaug and Hrafn, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, everyone's rushing in to say don't fight, don't fight, don't fight because right. they're young and they have a lot of potential and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Now there's one other interesting question regarding the end of dueling in Iceland that I wanted to ask you before mm-hmm. we close this off. Um, again, R.S. Radford, uh, he makes this claim in his article. It's called Going to the Island, a Legal and Economic Analysis of the Medieval Icelandic Duel. Uh, it's Southern California <laughs> oh, Law Review. That just sounds riveting. Yeah. Um, it's not that long, though. Um, anyway, he his basic thesis is that the abolishing of the home gong helped to contribute to the breakdown of social order and thus the chaos that erupted in the 13th century. Really? That strikes me yeah. as kind of a Freakonomics approach to Icelandic history. A Freakonomics. So why don't you explain what you mean by that? Freakonomics, for those who haven't read the book, um, the author of Freakonomics takes seemingly unrelated uh, events, sort of chooses one thing in history, and then uh, argues for its effect, uh, sort of it popping up, as the cause of something else that happens. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, so to me, like taking this sort of and saying that this outlawing of the duels in the early 11th century, two and a half centuries later, leads to the collapse of the culture is kind of sure. seems, well, seems excessive. Be, might be a little bit unfair, though, because he's saying it's a contributing factor. It's, it helps okay. to contribute All to right. the breakdown, which, yeah. which could be fair. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure that I completely buy that just yeah. because it seems like what's happening in Iceland at that time and, and I think in, in my opinion what's what's really happening is that uh, they they are kind of protecting their own and mm-hmm. seeing the silliness of the loss of life over these honor duels and mm-hmm. and the way that the law was being circumvented uh, as I tried to do to you right right uh, I was in a no-win well, situation so I'm going to challenge you to a fight because I could probably win that you but you make the this. argument then that in the 13th century, I mean, what really sort of breaks down the social order is not, you know, rich men fighting one-on-one duels. It's large numbers of men fighting on behalf of wealthy men sure. who are just tearing the countryside apart. But it, I guess you'd maybe, almost think, uh, you know, that that uh, uh, maybe reinstituting the duel might have stopped the collapse or at least mm-hmm. uh, helped to slow it down. But I don't know that outlawing the duel sort of causes – 
these large right. scale battles. I can only imagine what he's thinking of is that it, it takes the power away from the, the have nots mm-hmm. to, to defend themselves in corrupt courts. And certainly if you're looking at, right. uh, as we move towards the 13th century, mm-hmm. these more powerful families end up ruling the courts right. and, and buying decisions or forcing decisions, which like we saw in Bandamana Saga right, and, exactly. and others, that, that, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. So it, I guess that issue of, uh, of helping to, to correct a corrupt court through the duel is mm-hmm. something that Radford's very interested in. Yep. But again, that's a, that's a small thing. And I think yeah. what, yeah. Um, in the year 1006, they're, they're definitely trying to preserve life and they're trying to solve a problem that they mm-hmm. see with the use of dueling to right. circumvent, uh, the legal structures that keep order in society. And I think that does it. That brings this saga brief to a close. Uh, and nice. we didn't cover everything, but I'm confident that you heard more than you wanted to. <laughs> that sounds a little bit negative. Well, I'm going to say, <laughs> I hope that you all enjoyed our saga brief on the home gong. Uh, we'll be back very soon with a new episode of saga thing. When we cover the saga of Halfred, the troublesome poet. Um, in the meantime, we'd like to ask our faithful listeners to post a review of our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever source you use to download saga thing. Yes. We want to get the word out there and your reviews and ratings will help us to get noticed. Uh, we really appreciate that extra effort. Uh, and thank you for listening. Until next time, everybody. Bye for now. Let me read a little bit of that when I find the book. Why don't you? I'll do a little soft shoe until you find your place. Okay. Okay.